Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to the award-winning Basketball History 101 part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from NBA history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new-school audience. And today, we bring you the story of Bob Pettit. Like many of our previous episodes, Bob Pettit is one of the greatest players in basketball history, but does not get talked about as much anymore. He has not been completely forgotten. He made the NBA's 35th anniversary team back in 1981. He also made the NBA's top 50 greatest players list in 1996. And he made the NBA 75 list earlier this season. Like I said, he is not completely forgotten. He continues to make these top players lists. But when you hear an actual discussion about the greatest scorers or the greatest rebounders, his name rarely comes up in discussion. And I'm not trying to be too judgmental about this. I know why this happens. Since the 1980s, the NBA has been archiving every single game played so they can always go back and see video on any player from any game in the last 40 years or so. Today, the games are recorded and archived from at least 12 different cameras so that highlights can be put together of the same play from multiple angles. There is simply far more video available on players from the last 40 years than there is on players from the first 35 years. This helps keep current players more relevant than earlier players. Now that is really more a product of technology than anything else. There really is no one to blame, but this is why we do this podcast. Our goal and mission is to keep these older players in the conversation. And even if today's player is bigger, stronger, faster, and more athletic than players from yesteryear, the older players are the foundation that today's player builds upon. That is why I wanted to take an episode to share the story of Bob Pettit. He is truly one of the greats. He was one of only four NBA players to make the All-Star team every single year that he played. The other three are Jerry West, Yao Ming, and Paul Arizin. He also made the All-NBA team all 11 seasons that he played. He was a 10-time selection to the All-NBA first team, which only selects five players each season. It is a huge honor and he made that team in each of his first 10 seasons. In his final season, he made the All-NBA second team. That means that he was one of the top five players in the league during his first 10 years, and in his final year, he dropped to a top 10 player. That is what we call sustained excellence. Let me give you another fact. Bob Pettit was at one time the all-time leading scorer in NBA history. Only six players have ever been able to call themselves the greatest scorer in NBA history, and I'll give you that list in order. From the inception of the NBA in 1946 until 1952, the all-time leading scorer was Jumpin' Joe Folks. He was then passed by George Mikan in 1953. Mikan was then passed by Dolph Shays in 1958. And then it was Bob Pettit in 1965. In fact, Pettit was the first player in league history to surpass 20,000 career points. It was an incredible milestone to reach. I mean, it really was a huge deal in its day. But most people knew that it would not last long because Wilt Chamberlain was climbing the scoring ladder like he had a rocket strapped to his back. In 1967, Wilt Chamberlain became the new NBA scoring king. 
and he was passed in 1985 by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who is still the all-time leading scorer today. Kareem has been the scoring king for longer than anyone. He's been at the top of the mountain for 37 years and counting. LeBron James is approximately 50 games away from breaking Kareem's record. Now anyway, back to Pettit. In order to give you his story, I need to take you back to the beginning. He was born on December 12, 1932 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And if you ever hear him speak, he has quite a thick Louisiana accent. It is very easy to tell which part of the United States he is from. Most players that reached the NBA were taller, faster, and more athletic than all of the other kids in their neighborhood. Pettit was a late bloomer from a physical perspective. He loved basketball, but he did not reach his full height until a bit later in life. He was around six feet tall as a freshman at Baton Rouge High School, but was cut from the team because his skills had not quite come together. He was still a bit awkward athletically. He ended up playing church league basketball and continued to hone his skills. He came back for basketball tryouts as a sophomore, but was cut again. He played another year of church league ball. Of course, that was back in the day when there was very little coaching for kids. Pettit learned how to play basketball on his own by trial and error. If something worked, he stuck with it. If it did not work, he would abandon it. But his junior year, he grew to around 6 foot 2 or 188 centimeters and made the team. He not only made the team, he became the star of the team. He was named All-City and brought a lot of attention to the school. For his final year as a senior, he grew even taller to 6 foot 7 or 201 centimeters. He only got better and he led his team to the 1950 Louisiana State Championship. He had schools from all over the southern part of the United States seeking his services. He decided to stay in his hometown of Baton Rouge and attend Louisiana State University, or LSU. Back then, freshmen were not allowed to play on the varsity in college. He had to play on the freshman team. But during his sophomore year, he had reached his full height of six foot nine or 206 centimeters, and he led the Southern Conference in scoring. He was named All-Conference and was sure to lead the LSU Tigers to bigger and better things. For his junior year in college, he led LSU to the conference championship and the 1953 Final Four, and he was named an All-American. He was not able to win the national championship, but he put himself on the NBA radar as a top pick. For his senior year or final season at LSU, he led them again to the conference championship and was named All-American. He finished his career at LSU with a career scoring average of 27.8 points per game. At the time, he was considered the greatest player to come out of LSU. About 15 years later, all of his school scoring records were broken by Pete Maravich. But that is a separate story. With an incredible college career now complete, Bob Pettit was ready to go professional and join the ranks of the NBA. Now this is a good place to take a break and I'll be right back with the rest of Bob Pettit's story. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. We here at the Sports History Network proudly partner with 26 podcasts, all revolving around the history of sports. But did you know that many of our hosts were sports history authors way before they started their shows? It's true. We've got Joe Ziemba, host of When Football Was Football, Joe Zagurski, host of Pro Football in the 1970s. Mark Morthier, host of Yesterday Sports. Tommy Phillips, host of Lombardi Memories. And Scott Adamson, co-host of From the 55-Yard Line. All these authors have many books for you to choose from. To check them out, go to our website at sportshistorynetwork.com 
slash sports history books. Pick up your copy today. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Welcome back to the show and let us continue with the story of Bob Pettit. He just finished his career at LSU in 1954 and was, at the time, considered the greatest player in LSU history. Now the NBA had come calling. He was drafted with the second overall pick by the Milwaukee Hawks. The Hawks asked him to change to a new position. Now back in college, he played basketball in the low post with his back to the basket. He was a natural center. His first head coach was Red Holdsman, who would later lead the Knicks to two championships. But at the time, Holdsman saw something in Pettit that even Pettit had not seen. Holzman asked Pettit to play the power forward position and challenged him to play facing the basket. That way, Pettit would be able to take advantage of his superior quickness to get around his man for easy layups or mid-range jumpers. It was not easy to suddenly change positions at the pro level. Now, while Pettit himself said that it was a challenge to make the transition, it could not have been that difficult because Pettit scored 20 points and grabbed 14 rebounds per game and won the 1955 Rookie of the Year award. He was also one of the few rookies to be named to the All-Star Game. By any reasonable measure, he had a fantastic rookie year, one of the best ever. Bill Russell once said that Pettit played even better when the pressure was on. But unfortunately for the people of Milwaukee, the owners of the Hawks decided to relocate the team to St. Louis, where they became the St. Louis Hawks. Here is where Pettit would play the rest of his career. So what does he do for an encore as a second year player? He led the entire league in scoring at 25.7 points per game and won the very first ever league MVP award. He also upped his rebounding to 16 per game. He was just a handful to deal with. Back then, when NBA players were shorter, if you were 6'6 six six or taller, then you were considered a big man. Today, a player would have to be at least 6'10 to be considered a big man. At 6'9, Pettit was unusually quick and opposing big men had trouble staying with him. If the defender backed off, he would just shoot over them. If they played him tight, he would just put the ball on the floor and drive right around him. He continued to score and rebound in bunches. It was always a long night for whoever had to defend Pettit. After his MVP season in 1956, the St. Louis Hawks held the draft pick that would become Bill Russell. However, the Hawks management decided to trade that pick to the Boston Celtics in exchange for two current All-Stars and future Hall of Famers, Cliff Hagen and Easy Ed McCauley. At the time, it seemed like a no-brainer trade for the Hawks. The Celtics got an unproven rookie and the Hawks received two All-Stars in their prime. The Hawks also traded for Slater Martin, who had championship experience with the Minneapolis Lakers, and they brought in Alex Hannum as a player coach. The mix of players gave the squad what they needed to contend for the NBA title. That very next year, in 1957, the Hawks went all the way to the NBA Finals, where they were pitted against the Boston Celtics and that rookie that they traded away, Bill Russell. Well, to make a long story short, the Celtics won the title in 1957. But in 1958, the Hawks were back in the finals again, and again paired up with the Boston Celtics. But this time, things were different. Bob Pettit and Cliff Hagen were a 1-2 scoring punch that proved too much for the Celtics. The Hawks won the finals 4 games to 2, with Bob Pettit scoring 50 points in the closeout game. That feat had not been duplicated until Giannis Antetokounmpo did it last year in 2021 with the Milwaukee Bucks. That championship with Bob Pettit is still the only championship in Hawks history. Some people would argue that the only reason the Hawks won the series was because Bill Russell was playing on a bad ankle. Well, the bad ankle part is true. 
Russell was playing at far less than 100%, but it is hard to say what would have happened had Russell been healthy. Maybe the Hawks win anyway, or maybe the Celtics win 10 years in a row instead of their record 8. You know that I love to play the what if game, and I could do it all day, but in the end, the Hawks did win the 1958 championship, and no one can take that away from them. In 1959, Pettit would lead the league in scoring again and win his second MVP award. He would lead the Hawks to the finals again in 1960 and 1961, but they lost to the Celtics both times, and he never got back to the finals after that, but he continued to score and rebound like a machine and was pretty much unstoppable. During his final season in 1965, he dealt with his first major injury and missed 30 games that year. He still managed to become the new NBA scoring king and surpassed 20,000 career points, which no one had ever done before. Today, 48 different players have scored 20,000 points or more in their careers. When I was a kid, scoring 20,000 points was still a huge deal because only about 10 players had ever done it at the time. But today, with nearly 50 players having accomplished that feat, it isn't that big of a deal anymore. The new standard is now 30,000 points, which 7 players have surpassed. But as I said before, it is very difficult to compare players from different eras. The entire context of how the game is played is so different. I believe that the closest we can come is to look at the degree to which a player dominates his own era, and then go from there. If you look at it that way, Pettit dominated his era like few players ever dominate their own eras. He is one of only three players to average 20 points and 20 rebounds for an entire season. The other two are Jerry Lucas and Will Chamberlain. Pettit finished his time in the NBA with a career scoring average of 26.36 points per game. That is still the 8th best scoring average ever. Starting at the top of the list, it is Michael Jordan, Will Chamberlain, Elgin Baylor, Kevin Durant, Jerry West, LeBron James, Allen Iverson, and Bob Pettit. That is incredible company. He is also the number 18 rebounder of all time, ahead of Charles Barkley when you look at total rebounds for a career and he only played 11 seasons, so his totals could have been larger if he had played 15 or 16 years like many players do today. But if you look at rebounds per game for a career, then he is the number three rebounder of all time at 16.22 rebounds per game for his entire career. In that category, he sits only behind Will Chamberlain and Bill Russell. So hopefully I have made my case for why Bob Pettit should be considered one of the greatest big men in NBA history and definitely one of the best scorers and rebounders of all time. Because of his ability to shoot from the outside, he was a stretch for 50 years before that even became a term. He could take his man to the outside to spread the floor and really put pressure on the other team's defense. And hey, did I mention that he won the MVP of the All-Star Game four times? His resume stands against anyone's from any era. After retirement, he went to work for a bank where he learned the banking and investment businesses. Keep in mind that the players did not make the same kind of money that they do today. Even a Hall of Famer like Bob Pettit had to have a second career. After 20 years of working at a bank, he struck out on his own and founded Equitas Capital Investors in Louisiana. He was an investment consultant for years before finally retiring completely in 2006. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame as a player in 1971, so the next time you are having a conversation about the best power forwards of all time, do not forget to include Bob Pettit in that conversation. Well, that does it for today. That is our story on Bob Pettit. Join us next time when we share the story of Game 3 of the 1991 NBA Finals between the Los Angeles Lakers and the Chicago Bulls. It was Michael versus Magic. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. 
Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There, you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.